0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's
1: quince.com slash upgrade.
2: Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and joining me on today's episode is My Wall Street's chief investor, Emmett Savage, and head analyst, Rory Karen. Today we're talking about the global impact of Squid Game and what it means for Netflix, electric truck maker Rivian's potential $80 billion IPO, what to look out for this earning season, and two stocks on our watch list. Right lads, uh, we're talking about Squid Game today, a show in which contestants compete in deadly children's games for money. Uh, I want to know, if you were in charge, what games would be on the list? Rory, (laughs) start with you. No 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 rollerblade advantage either. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I haven't, I haven't seen Squid Game yet. I'm oh, saving it up for it my, it, uh, for my leave. But um, so I don't know. Maybe this game's already in there. But I don't know, like a uh, dodge ball, but like the ball <laughs> is heavy. like covered in anthrax or something like
2: that.
1: <laughs>
2: Emmet, did you, did you play games back in your day,
1: or were you just walking to school on your bare feet? Well, oh, bare feet all the way. Yeah, <laughs> we, we. If I was to run, uh, I suppose uh, my Wall Street squid game we'd probably do uh, a game which our listeners should know about called fortress which was invented by rory
2: fortress fortress is a squid game because you just want to kill yourself after because it's so long and arduous
1: <laughs> so basically look for our listeners sake so um it's a bit of a, ge- it's a game that Rory invented that has played in my Wall Street HQ in non pandemic times after a long night out where you toss a ping pong ball into cups of beer in something that looks like beer pong but is far, far more hazardous. If you've <laughs> any awareness of germs, this is not the game for you.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's not,
0: it's not a. Pan- I don't know we will ever get to play Fortress again after this pandemic.
2: No, I don't think so. It's good while it lasted, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> right moving on to actually talking about squid games so if you haven't watched the show i think you've at least seen the memes uh the south korean drama is on track to become Netflix's most popular show ever and it's the number one watch show in over 90 countries the speed at which it's grown is a testament to the scale of netflix platform and its unique ability to deliver content to over 200 million viewers across the globe at the same time the temptation might be to brush this off as another tiger king-esque flash in the pan but it's much more than that Netflix has been investing in foreign language programming since 2015 and has spent more than $1 billion on Korean programs alone. Popularity of Squid Game is justification for this faith and a big step forward in the globalization of entertainment. Emmet, as a long-term Netflix shareholder, you must be delighted with all this attention on the company.
1: Of course I am. Lads, did you know that Netflix is now bigger than Nike and Coca-Cola? It has arrived, as they say, and they're scheduled to report earnings in a few days on October 19th, I think. But it's worth just kind of pausing to look at Netflix as an entity before we drill into Squid Game. And I really would like to elaborate on the phenomenon that has been Squid Game. But last quarter, Netflix's paid membership base came in at about 209 million accounts, which was up about 8% on the same quarter a year earlier. And the average monthly revenue per paying member was also up 8% to $11.67 which was good. So in the 12 weeks that was Q2 for Netflix, they took in $7.3 billion in revenue which was up 19% from the year ago quarter and earnings per share was nearly 3 bucks or 2.97 which was up 87%, which is pretty 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 good. So as as you said Netflix has a new nine-part thriller called Squid Game in which cash-strapped contestants play deadly childhood games to win something like 33 million euro. Anyway my wife and I are watching Squid Game at the moment and I have to say and this is incidental the English dubbing is the best I've seen. We're fans of skipping dubs in my house and just reading subtitles But this is a classy piece of work worthy of an Oscar if they gave out Oscars for TV shows. But anyway, look, um, that's not important right now. One of the most interesting side effects of Squid Game is that over the two weeks following the show's premiere, Duolingo, our language learning app reported a 76% rise in new users signing up to learn Korean in Britain and a 40% rise in the US. I mean, can you imagine the undertaking that is learning a whole new language? You watch a TV show and you go, yeah, I'm going to learn that. I like this. I like the sound of that language. So they That's had this. Isn't it unbelievable?
0: That's like, didn't they do something similar with that with um, the Queen's Gambit? Didn't it like see like a 5x increase in people playing chess online?
1: Yes, that's right, I remember. But at least a game of chess is a game of chess. Learning Korean, please. But I was saying to my wife, like, 76% rise in new users signing up to learn Korean in Britain. And she goes, yeah, but maybe that's just from 10 to 17 people. I was like, no, it's probably a few more. But anyway, you have to suspect that Squid Game has also brought in a few new subscribers as family members and classmates and colleagues recommend a show to each other and local I don't know local churchgoers tell each other that Squid Game is the bomb um but the fact is that it has become a global breakout phenomenon with quote a very good chance of it becoming Netflix's most popular show yet said Netflix's co-CEO Ted Sarandos a few weeks ago now since Netflix typically reports viewership figures in the context of a title's first 28 days. Squid Game will pass that mark on October 14th, which is tomorrow in our world, Mike and Rory, and yesterday in the day that this podcast goes live's world. So what I'd like to do is just read to you uh, a list of Netflix's all-time most popular self-produced shows. Top of the list, the most popular show produced by Netflix. Well, season one of Bridgerton, which is, I believe, a period romance. And a, I've no interest but, in that stuff at all. But 82 million people or accounts watched Bridgerton. And I suspect that was something to do with coronavirus. In second place in their most watched TV shows is Lupin, which is a French high series, and I watched it along with seventy six million other Netflix accounts. Then in third place is The Witcher, which actually I'd never even heard of till I looked up the stats here, which apparently is a fantasy series based on a franchise of books. And again, seventy six million accounts, so it's neck and neck with Lupin. Then in fourth place, Sex Life. Fifth place, Stranger Things season three, which I loved, six seven million people. And so it continues in in sixth place, La Casa de Papel, Our Money heist followed by tiger king the queen's gambit in eighth place sweet tooth and then emily in paris so as i said netflix is scheduled to release its quarterly earnings report and disclose a new batch of viewership figures the week after and i think that the squid game although it's just another tv show is going to have a material or at least a direct impact in the shape of the quarter that was q3 for netflix
2: yeah, you mentioned Lupin and uh, Casa Casa de Papel, Casa Papel um there mm. as well and Squid Game will probably be on top. There's three foreign language series in the top ten. Do you think this kind of like international expansion strategy is the way forward for Netflix, especially when like the US market is becoming a lot more kind of saturated, I suppose?
1: I absolutely do. I, I mean I can only give you my opinion, and an anecdote does not make data, but there's something very refreshing about watching a TV show that's based in a country in a culture on a language that you to this point have had no experience of and, and it's it's all new I think there certainly for me there was a fatigue in seeing the same Hollywood A-listers in TV shows and, and although I enjoy them there's something really refreshing I, I particularly enjoyed Borgen for example which is on Netflix which was a Danish political kind of drama and, and I do think that it's an important part of their expansion strategy because not only do they they appeal to the native country in which the dramas are based, but they, I suppose, open the doors of what a drama looks like from foreign shores to other countries. I think it's really smart, and I think as we, as as you said, there Lupin is French, and and La Casa de Papel or whatever it's called, Money Heist was was in Spanish, and I just think it's a great thing altogether.
0: I wonder what sort of, like, copycats are going to pop out now. Do you remember what it was the, the killing, was the Danish kind of noir drama that's, that launched all these detective copycats? What, what kind right. of squid game yeah, copycats right. are we going to see? coming Yeah. Around the corners? Scarlett Johansson oh, those... is
2: going to get the job, though, anyways. <laughs> have <it>. right. <laughs> <laughs> I have it here. Netflix uh, tra- offers subtitles in 37 languages and dubs it in 34. I guess streets ahead mm-hmm. of any other streamer
1: so you guys subtitle likers are dubbed which do you prefer subtitles for me i think When well, i watch
2: squid game it's subtitle.
0: yeah it'd usually be subtitles as well though mm. some of the japanese miyazaki films which is the japanese kind of version of disney they used to get in some fantastic actors to do the dubbing who's the one the one from x-files did that one time uh gillian anderson oh. yes patrick stewart did one so they were always really good fun to, to mm. listen to
1: those yeah, I'd be. I prefer uh, subtitles as well, but for whatever reason, in Squid Game, it's dubbed. And as I said, they're doing a fine job, so I'm totally brought along.
2: Rory, so Squid Game is kind of a reflection of wealth inequality that's rife in South Korea. The impact of the show has had on public perception has spilled over into the real world and a stock you've been following. Could you elaborate on this one? I can,
0: yeah. There's a, a company I have been keeping a very close eye on recently is Coupang. Um, which I'm going to be completely reductive about it, is the Amazon of South Korea, a company that got off to quite a good start as a publicly traded business. But it hasn't been doing very well uh, in the last few months. In fact, in the last six months, it's shed almost half its value. And a lot of that seems to be related to a kind of real... It, it, it almost instant change in public perception uh, in Korea relating to the business uh, almost kind of comparable to what uber faced back in 2017 with the with the boycott movement and this seems to be very much tied to their founder a guy called bon kim who was at one point sort of a poster child for a kind of new generation of entrepreneurs in the country seen as kind of quite a positive thing kind of the opposite of what was seen as the kind of the old family wealth that had kind of dominated the country over the last kind of couple of decades But just in a matter of months, that's all changed. There's been a couple of controversies surrounding the business, um, really kind of kicking off with what was a deadly fire at a fulfillment center back in June, which on that very day, the founder announced that he was stepping down as head of the Korean business in order to explore international expansion. This was seen as as kind of shirking responsibility for for the fire, even though it had been planned far in advance. But the app saw a drop of 700,000 users in one day at the height of this boycott. So, yeah, we're kind of waiting to see how this plays out in the company's earnings. And funnily enough, the popularity of Coupang is largely driven, uh, from my perspective anyway, on this kind of workaholic culture that exists in South Korea, this 996 system where workers are kind of expected to work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. And so Coupang kind of really carved out a great business for itself in serving those workers by providing things like next-day delivery if you order before midnight. But now it's it's almost been seen as this kind of... uh, beacon of inequality Um, and that that's obviously being I mean uh, like I said I haven't seen the show yet but all reports suggest that's kind of being mirrored in in this show.
2: Very interesting right moving from squid game to another depressing capitalist nightmare the electric truck maker Rivian has filed for an IPO which could lead to an 80 billion dollar valuation making it one of the largest private companies in the world. The catch, Rivian doesn't make any money yet. Basically, Rivian is pre-revenue $80 billion company, fingers crossed for them. However, the company does have almost 50,000 pre-orders for its R1T and R1S trucks from customers who put down a refundable deposit of $1,000 each. Uh, but perhaps the most exciting aspect of the company is that it's producing an electric delivery van for Amazon, who have put in an order of 100,000 vans by the end of 2025, as you would expect, we saw some ambitious projections in the company's S1 with the company claiming it's building the future of mobility and that it has a whopping $9 trillion total addressable market. It also expects to spend $8 billion by the end of 2023. Rory, with a $9 trillion TAM, $80 billion is a bargain, surely, no? Did
0: they actually say that? Did the Nine company trillion, say that? $9 yeah. trillion, $9 trillion TAM. <laughs> um, that's upsetting because I was going to say some nice things about them. <laughs> I'm not so sure. Uh, that for the, really, for the future it. of
2: mobility, Rory, come on.
0: I mean, yeah. I mean, let's like that's like saying Spotify's TAM is everyone with ears, you know, or <laughs> uh, or Nike's TAM is everyone with feet. Um, yeah. Just multiply everyone in the world by two, and you've got how many Nike. Shoes you could potentially sell. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I suppose in general, those two statements are actually true. Then you have to get into the realm of the reasonable, look at things like SAM, which is your uh, serviceable addressable market, which then feeds into your SOM, which is your serviceable obtainable market which is, as you know, as, as we get into it, their TAM might be 9 trillion, but that's definitely not what their SOM is going to be. In terms of kind of valuation, I suppose, let's kind of push that back for a little bit. Just talk about the business first and foremost. It's a company that was founded in 2009. So this is not a new company by any stretch of the imagination. They've been at this for a very long time. And um, they actually began working on sports cars, but pivoted to trucks and recreational vehicles. A couple of years ago, as you pointed out, they've yet to sell a single vehicle, so there is no, there's literally no revenue. Um, However, there are plenty of losses. Uh, So in 2019, they lost 426 million dollars. That doubled in 2020 to over a billion. And so far this year, by which I mean the first six months of the year, um, the company has lost almost a billion uh, dollars. So this is a company that, over the last two and a half years, has lost 2.5 billion dollars and that is rapidly increasing because keep in mind they still have yet to sell anything now in saying that the company has plenty of cash in the bank about 3.7 billion dollars and they do have some very big backers in the likes of amazon and ford So, you know, I don't think there is any chance of a kind of uh, Lordstown Motors fiasco here. They're well capitalized. They've got some, as I said, very big backers. So they, I mean, they will get cars off the line. Uh, They have a plant in Illinois at the moment that they bought from one of the Japanese companies, maybe Mitsubishi. And they claim they're able to produce about 150,000 vehicles a year, expanding to 200,000 vehicles a year. And they claim the initial launch vehicles will all be in production by the end of the year. In fact, I think some of them have already been made, but possibly haven't been sold just yet. We'll yeah, no, I think,
2: I think it started in September, production okay. of one of the trucks, yeah.
0: Great, well, yeah, as I mean, they have two They have two consumer products, a five-seat and a seven-seat truck, the R1S and the R1T. And they have about forty-eight thousand pre-orders for those models. Now, keep in mind those pre-orders are just deposits that are easily cancelable so you can't. You have to take that number with a massive pinch of salt. They also have a seven-day, one-thousand-mile return policy, so even trucks that they do end up shipping they may have to refund those customers on. Um, Now, importantly, these trucks are not work trucks. So to think about them in terms of something like the Ford F-150, which is an immensely popular vehicle in the US, would be totally wrong. They're kind of more trucks you would have if you wanted to go camping. They're more kind of SUVs than they are kind of the, the work trucks that are so popular along the American highways and which terrified me when I drove across there a couple of years ago because you look out your window and there's a wheel the size of your entire car right beside your head. (laughs) Um, uh, Things that we don't just have, we just don't have in Europe. The most interesting side of this business is probably their commercial wing, this kind of EDV or electric delivery vans. Uh, This is what attracts the investment from Amazon. Amazon's ordered up to 100,000 of these, 10,000 due to be delivered by the end of next year. Production's supposed to start in December. Um, And they've also kind of talked about ancillary ancillary businesses, service centers, mobile service vans, fast charging ports, etc. I mean... to to talk about this business as an 80 billion dollar business they're looking to raise 8 billion off an 80 billion dollar valuation it's ambitious you Mm. know it's it's an ambitious uh, and part of me kind of is looking at them and going well you know they might actually get away with this and you know all fair play to them if they do because that is the kind of market that we're operating in especially in this kind of industry but you know like you know go back to the fundamentals here they have never sold a vehicle you know even if you were to take that was 48,000 pre-orders for, uh, for their trucks. Um, the Cybertruck from Tesla has over a million pre-orders. So if we were to kind of do the maths in our head here and say, right, well, for Rivian's 48,000 pre-orders equal 80 billion, is the Cybertruck itself worth like you know trillion dollars? You know, doing <laughs> to do the back of the envelope maths here. Of course, that is. I mean, in fairness, that is not counting the commercial uh, the commercial vehicles. But eighty billion dollars for a company that hasn't made any money is um, and not even made profits, but hasn't even made revenue yet is 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 really pushing it. And they're entering into a much more crowded space than a company like Tesla was ten years ago.
2: Yeah. How much? How much do you think Tesla's influence? has on that 80 billion dollar figure like do you think it's uplifted the entire valuation structure of the industry
0: yeah i mean like you know for years ago and as i said earlier that phrase you know the amazon of south korea it used to be what's the next amazon or i'm sure amazon uh, emma you've had lots of people asking you what's the next netflix Mm -hmm. um in the ev space everyone is looking for the next tesla and i think was it last week on the podcast I, i i was asked what tesla's advantages, and I said it was like the sexy side of of electric vehicles. I think I'm going to kind of rethink that or reassess that and say that what, what I think Tesla actually sells is smugness. Um, and I say that as someone who's, who's <laughs> you, currently... You say uh, that with a
2: big shit-eating grin in front of you. Yeah, well.
0: I'm currently staying, I'm currently, <laughs> I'm currently in an area that has an awful lot of Teslas and the smug look that you see on Tesla drivers' faces is what they are really paying for. Uh, Elon Musk is an ivory tower merchant, that is what he sells. Mm. And there's only so much of that to go around. I, like, I really don't know if all these new entrants are going to be able to, you know, get in there and, and 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 have that same impact in terms of like the consumer love that seems to go straight towards tesla you know you're gonna have obviously you're gonna have some small winners but will there ever be another tesla in this space mm. i don't know maybe the, you know, they always they also have the problem of the old tesla still being there uh, which is still competing with all these businesses and mm. you know as we know as i mentioned already tesla is releasing its own truck which has far more pre-orders So, yeah, it's, you know, we look at Tesla and we we see the valuations that it managed to get. It was obviously competing with no one but itself. Uh, And now there's all these other people coming in and they have to compete with Tesla. So, yeah, I would be very cautious on taking these valuations and saying, well, that's even anywhere near reasonable if you're going to, like, compare them to Tesla's valuations.
1: Although it's only one single story. I was out at home recently visiting an old friend of mine, Enrique. We grew up together and he's just bought the new Porsche. Taycan which is their electric offering and we went out for a spin and it was absolutely beautiful it was face meltingly fast and it was really desirable machine if you're into that kind of thing and, and as I probably mentioned before there's a Tesla here in our driveway we're, we're not smug at all about it it's just a car that we use um, and I didn't want to say to my lifelong friend but I thought that Tesla was a a faster machine. Um, But I can tell you something when it comes to desire and design and aesthetic, the interior of the Porsche and its dash, for me, was a far more beautiful thing. And it was the first time, I guess, that I had sat into a premium electric vehicle that isn't Tesla and kind of got, you know, realized by seeing that all the other car manufacturers are quickly running to market with an alternative to their prior models, which were diesel and gasoline and petrol, as we say over here.
2: Very good. Right. Uh, Moving on to what's going on in My Wall Street at the minute. We've just published our Stock of the Month podcast, to the app this week, in which Rory and James break down October's pick. This is one of the businesses that either you or someone you know is a customer of, you might even be using it right now. We also have some great pieces exclusive to the My Wall Street app, including Amory's full write-up on one of the most exciting names in MedTech, And this Monday, we will be adding a new stock to the shortlist. So make sure you're there to see that. As always, you can follow the link in the notes for this podcast to start your free trial with My Wall Street. Mailbag next, lads. For this week, we're going to chat about the upcoming earnings season, which feels like it just ended, but here we go. Rory, uh, are there any teams that you expect to see unfold over the coming weeks as companies start to report?
0: Uh, Yeah, I think this is going to be quite a volatile earnings season. I think there are a number of catalysts for volatility all sort of converging on top of us uh, at the same time. Firstly, we've got a difficult set of comps for some of those stay-at-home stocks that did so well in the lockdown last year. Now, we've already seen quite a big pullback in a lot of those names already, so it may be the case where, you know, even the smallest amount of positive news could cause some swings to the upside on top of that. Of course, we've got this global supply chain issue that may not necessarily show up in these earnings but we're, that we're seeing, but it could very well have an impact on guidance for this quarter, which is only coming around the corner. As you say, they seem to get sooner and sooner uh, every time we do one of these. Uh, tied to that, we might see a lot of commentary on inventory. Uh, I think this is going to be one of those earnings season where analysts are going to be digging into that inventory section of the report. Um, to get a sense in terms of uh, uh, to get a sense where the company is in terms of shifting their product, but also being able to secure raw materials. And in, in consumer hardware, we're obviously going to be hearing about chip shortages. We know Apple is having big issues, which could lead them to selling about ten million fewer iPhones than they had previously predicted. It's nice when selling ten million fewer products only drops your stock two percent when you're operating at that scale uh, um, but added to that you know we're, we're going I'm sure we're going to hear about rising costs across the board we're going to hear about labor shortages it's you know it's like one of those earnings that comes after like a major storm in the u s where literally every single CEO has the storm excuse card in their pocket, even if the storm probably had no impact on their on their actual business. The flip side of that is that uh, there seems to be incredibly strong consumer demand out there. Um, People are just itching to spend money uh, now that the world is open again. So businesses that have been able to meet that demand could see some really great blowout figures. Another thing that's probably not mentioned is that the United Kingdom are noisy neighbours to the east. Are having a bit of a tired time, uh, though the the government doesn't seem to realize it, but there seems to be serious problems there in terms of supply, in terms of energy prices. And even though, you know, we don't follow many businesses that are kind of based there, Diageo I think is maybe the only one that's that's actually based in the UK, but it is a major market and uh, that could uh, have a serious impact on some revenue figures for American-based companies.
2: Very good. Emmett, as, a, as an experienced investor, do you have any tips of advice for new investors on how to tackle earning season?
1: Oh, it's very easy. Uh, treat it as you would treat entertainment. Don't over-intellectualize what you see or hear. Very rarely will a single quarter bring something that's strategic or structural change to a company. I mean, we here at My Wall Street, Rory... You, Mike, and I are well used to just watching the quarters roll by and they add a little bit of information and they slightly augment the view of the business that you may or may not have bought into. But the best thing you can do as an early stage investor is to just let a few quarters roll by and get into the cadence of the reporting that is Wall Street because it really, as, as Rory said, runs rolls by really quickly. Every 12 weeks, you're getting a new fresh delivery of information about, you know, three months of sales or three months of partnerships or whatever it is. And in the big picture, as they say in the movie industry, to come back to the Netflix analogy, when you cut to wide shot, a single quarter very, very rarely has any meaningful impact on what in fact it is you're assessing and the business you're investing. In very good, okay. Yeah,
0: I'd, I mean, I'd, I'd uh, definitely echo that. And you know, um, I think you, we, uh, you need to recognize that earnings season is a time of really heightened emotion. Uh, there's going to, there's going to inevitably going to be businesses over the next month that have days where the stock drops 20, maybe even 30 percent. But what makes great investors is the ability to recognize that emotion and recognize that that's not what drives long term returns. Great businesses. Don't just throw in the towel because sentiment has changed or because of some short-term issue, like the supply chain has busted. And like I say, every time, you know, if you're investing for 10 years, a quarterly earnings report is just 1 of the time you're going to be an owner of that business. It's, you know, 2.5%. If you wake up one day and the first 2.5% of your day doesn't go well, you you don't, you know, curl up on the floor, you know, you you shake it off, maybe do a little meditation and, uh, and get on with it.
2: You clearly haven't been around when I'm waking up in the morning, Rory. Um... <laughs> right moving swiftly on after that elevator pitch to finish out today's show lads in 30 seconds i want you to pitch me a company you're looking at emmett start with you
1: okay well i'm looking at it doesn't mean i'm actually interested in it further to our chat on stock club me
0: instantly get himself out of <laughs> so <laughs> already i'm you saying the don't
1: do this well okay so look further to our chat on Stock Club a few weeks ago where our friend Jason Moser from the Motley Fool said he'd invested in C3 AI which has been on my radar for a few months um I took a closer look and I put a lot of credence in Jason's opinions he's a first class investor with an outstanding track history so C3 AI provides AI algorithms that help companies bolt on ai chisel to their business like it you know you need some ai you go to c3 ai and they this ai system that will do maintenance routines and it will detect fraud and optimize inventories and strengthen existing crm and unt- ultimately a good one would would make the three of us redundant but anyway c3 ai stock tumbled around 10 percent uh about a month ago after their first quarter earnings. And now, let me just tell you about it. And here's why I'm not going to pursue my 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 research on it. Its revenue rose 29 percent year over year to around 52 million bucks, beating estimates by a million bucks. But it posted a net loss of 37 million compared to a profit a year prior. But what what really kind of bothers me is that C three increased its customer count last year by 82% to just 89 customers, right? And its average contract value fell from around 12 million to about 7 million. So it uh, so in the most recent quarter, it, it grew customer count by 85% to 98 customers. And the average contract value again dropped this time to about $4.5 million. So I'm keeping it on a short list of companies with traction in a very complex field, but I'm not pitching it in Horizon or here in Stock Club just yet.
2: Okay, the, the pitch that wasn't a pitch, Rory, will you yeah. tell me? Will you, you didn't tell me say about pitch it? one I want to buy. You said just pitch a <laughs> stock. <laughs> Rory, you talked to me about a stock you actually like.
0: Uh, I I actually sorry I actually was uh, I'm with Emma on this I thought this was just stocks that we were
1: looking at not necessarily yeah, well, likes, like come on. But, I mean ah. as it happens the stock I am looking at is stock that I do like Mike when you WhatsApp us a picture stock you're looking at Rory and I are very lit- we're very literal creatures we, we we're not deep rivers it's like oh I just looked at C three AI that's what I'll talk about
0: Yeah, I've literally opened the Yahoo Finance page that's as far as I've
2: looked at. as you're. You're not supposed to tell people how little research you do for this show. <laughs>
0: um, the stock I am looking at, and I do like, funnily enough, uh, is a company called Warby Parker that just IPO'd. Anyone in North America would be well aware of this kind of DTC superhero, super success story of bringing a real service innovation to the, to the eyewear industry, I suppose doing the old jeff bezos trick of um, your margin is my opportunity where they are now selling millions of pairs of eyewear to people in north america at a kind of standard rate of hundred dollars for a pair with with your prescription it's a business that's just ipo'd I, I i really like the the founding story four friends from stanford got together built this thing from the ground up um, they currently have 2 million active members, which people who, who buy from them on a, on a regular enough basis. Uh, steep valuation at $6 billion, like, like a whole kind of recently IPO company, I suppose. But uh, I think, you know, so often, definitely in my lifetime, I've, I've overlooked great brands because of valuation. And so often I've been proven wrong. You know, Great brands have the ability, if you think 10, 20 years out, to really drive valuations much higher than you could ever imagine. And there's plenty of opportunity for this business. They've got international expansion to look, uh, look forward to. They've got um, this kind of new... Blue screen blocking lens thing that a lot of people are getting into to protect their eyes from when they're using phones and computers and things like that. And if they got into reading glasses, there would be a whole new kind of market open up them. So, yeah, like the business, happy to keep it on my watch list for six months and see how it's doing as a public company.
2: Nice one. You'll be watching it closely.
0: We'll be <laughs> keeping a close eye on it. Uh,
2: there were so many jokes and I couldn't decide on one. I'm not happy with <laughs> you that.
0: Picked a, you picked the worst one. <laughs> uh,
2: so, so many opportunities missed right (laughs) thanks lads
0: it's not hard on the eyes how about that it's
2: not hard on the eyes yeah you were a bit nearsighted right we're rambling again (laughs) that's it for this week's Stock Club remember if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle make sure to get in touch you can find us on Twitter that's at mywallstreethq on TikTok that's at mywallstreet or simply just email us at pod at (laughs) mywallstreet.com